Friday, February 13th, 1925. Something odd was happening in Arkham, Massachusetts. Typically, this would not be a surprise to the residents of the dreary New England town. Indeed, Arkham has always been well known for its strange, some would say supernatural, occurrences. The nature of this particular circumstance, however, was anything but typical. It all began in the latest issue of Tales from Nevermore. A writer by the name of Virgil Gray described a journey he had taken in his dreams. A journey he claimed was not a work of fiction on his part. He wrote of a long, spiraling staircase, an unbearably hot pillar of sentient fire, a tree that came from the moon, and a curious talking cat. Among other things equally difficult to believe, but it wasn't this extraordinary tale that first drew your attention. Soon after Virgil's tale was published, Tales from Nevermore began to receive and publish letter after letter from those who had read Virgil's story and claimed to have experienced the exact same dream. Before long, the Arkham advertiser picked up the story and news of this strange phenomenon reached the ears of experts. You and your companions have gathered together to get to the bottom of this strange phenomenon. If others in town can travel to another world in their dreams, perhaps you can too. You've recreated the circumstances of Virgil's journey perfectly. If all goes well, half of you will take the trip to this dreamland and back. The rest will stay here in the waking world, studying your companion's sleep patterns to ensure nothing goes wrong. Welcome to Arkham Horror. So, we really like HP Lovecraft individually. Yep. We both like card games. You don't say. Tell me, Scott, is there something that satisfies both of these interests? Is there? I think there is. I don't think so. I think you're full of shit. Honestly, I think you're gaslighting me. You know what? Fuck this. Fuck this podcast. I'm out. This has been King of the Shill. Have a good day. <laughs> yeah, Scott, th there is something that satisfies both of these itches. It is a game that we've played, I I know for a fact, at least 100 hours of. 
Oh, yes. That is quite a long time to play a game. And I think that if you're going to play a game for at least, as you said, to use your words, at least 100 hours, it's got to be something that's cool enough to sustain your interest for that long. Isn't that right? That's right. Uh, we're what are we talking about today? We're talking about Fantasy Flight Games Arkham Horror Limited Card Game. First of all, Chris, do you know what a limited card game is? I know you're not as much of a nerd for this shit as I am. Well, so I do now, but I didn't before. And Arkham Horror was actually my first experience with a limited card game. And in fact, it's so new to me within the last year or so that I used to think it was called a living card game. Well, no, you're right. It is a living card game. I just had a Freudian slip. It is a living oh. card game. You're right. Okay. I, I guess right. I gaslit you. You uh, gaslit me uh, uh, successfully, but it is a living card game. It is a card game format uh, created and I'll say popularized by fantasy flight games that goes against the grain of what you're usually thinking of with a card game. Magic the Gathering, Yu-Gi-Oh, Pokemon, all these like super popular card games. You buy the booster packs. The booster packs have random cards in them. You take the random cards and you build a deck and you go and play. Those cards phase out. New booster packs come out. Rinse, repeat. Thanks for your money. Right. That's right. There is a uh, a younger gentleman. I don't know how quite old, so I will not assume. But there is a younger gentleman that I always see at the Target near my house that after his Little League games goes and buys himself a couple MTG booster packs, son. So I always think about him whenever I think about those old games. Yeah, there's uh there's a there's a kind of addiction that goes along with that model, right? It's the it's the yeah. chase. You got to get it's the like new- opening FIFA packs. Exactly. Well, I mean, I think that I I am very sure that EA and those types of companies took a page directly from the book of Magic the Gathering and Pokemon and things like that. Like the Skinner <laughs> box method is proven to work, right? Yeah, dude. I mean, you know, MTG had microtransactions before they were even a thing. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but living card games are different. Uh, they are limited card games in that they are. they are a singular product that you buy. They come with expansions. They come with other products within their own sub brand. But when you buy Android Netrunner, when you buy... The Legend of the Five Rings, when you buy the Arkham Horror Living Card Game, you have a complete product for the most part. Sometimes they make it so you need to buy a couple copies of the box to get the maximum number of each copy. But you have a fully playable product. You have one of every, at least of every intended card that comes along with that product. And they're banking that you're going to spend the money to continue to play the game by buying those expansions, by buying more of those boxed products to have more copies of those cards. You're not chasing individual cards anymore. And it's a really interesting model that results in kind of a different approach to gameplay too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I would, I would even add on to that and say that, you know, the chase is really the content. Yes, that's exactly right. You're not you're no longer worried about getting a particular card. You're worried about 
experiencing all the content in the box and then waiting for the new content. But yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah, we've been having a lot of fun and a lot of misery too, but we'll get into that. (laughs) Dude, over to go ahead. (laughs) This is gonna say, yeah, we should have just titled this episode. This sucks, but it rules. Yeah. <laughs> Our love-hate relationship with uh, Arkham Horror LCG. but Just thematically appropriate. Yeah, uh, the existential terror of cracking open Arkham Horror. But <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, right. What fresh new fucking hell awaits me today? The highest highs and the lowest lows. Uh, I, I really like this style of card games specifically because it hit me at the right time where it was like, you know, we hadn't quite started the show yet. We were still like concepting some things out and like that mostly consisted of us just getting together to play games and, um, you know, talk about ideas, which is how we record the show today. So not much has changed there, (laughs) but we got into Arkham horror right when COVID hit. Yes. Right. So we were like, we had been doing game nights for a couple months up until that point where we had like steady people coming, right? And we were like, this is sick, right? We finally have steady game nights where people are engaged in playing games. And then COVID hit and those go away and we're suddenly looking for board games to play. And everybody's down for board games over tabletop simulator and discord for like 10 days. And then everybody goes back to Overwatch and cod and apex and scott and i are sitting there like but board games right not <laughs> so only he's like what well, go ahead i was gonna say not only that but like new board games because i'm a total yeah. i'm a total fucking nerd and a dirty shill so i'm always sending stuff to chris like hey check out this game that i've seen yeah. and i've never gotten to play hey check out this game right it's right. it's like right. shilling add but uh one day uh i so i was already a fan of the living card game system i think we actually did play some netrunner before this we played netrunner first because it was it's more of a a player versus player thing it's it's one-on-one and it's like it's um specifically meant to be mono a mono rather than it could be or couldn't be right so we got into it that way first yeah so i netrunner is probably my favorite card game of all time uh beating out mtg for all the reasons that mtg sucks uh (laughs) you're speaking as someone who's been playing mtg since he was like 10 years old yeah uh, right i i I had a lot of trauma from that card game but i uh i know i saw the arkham horror stuff and i thought you know what i think that chris would really like this stuff i know that we both really like lovecraft and this is more of a cooperative rpg light kind of even roguelike experience with cards right so let's talk a little bit about the game and why we like it chris so when you what are the big things like when you crack open the box what's what drew your eye most what excited you the most about arkham horror when we first picked it up so the art the themes i mean the i I was already a fan of hp lovecraft one of the things that we talked about at length when we met were was bloodborne right Mm -hmm. um and all of those lovecraftian themes that are in there and then we you know shortly realized that we were both fans of hp lovecraft's work and this was just sort of like a, a natural thing for us to do so when you presented it to me i i 
I will probably say this word a lot because I like or this term a lot because I like using it for stuff that I really love. And I've said this about Strive and I've said this about uh, Metro Exodus and its visuals in game. Arkham Horror's art and the things that you interact with on the cards, on the books, um, throughout the game is a real feast for the eyes. It is thematically steeped in the types of tropes that you see uh, and feel throughout Lovecraft's work, like noir, right? Like sort of uh, the, the mystery, the overhanging haze of mystery, right? It's very, it's very easy to sink your teeth into the visuals. And that was really the first thing that grabbed me about it. Yeah. So like you said, this is basically a RPG romp through several different loosely based on stories of HP Lovecraft, right? There's, yeah, right. There's, uh, there's an expansion that tackles Innsmouth. There's an expansion that tackles, uh, Dunwich. the dream Dunwich, the dream quest of unknown Kadath. Uh, there's, there's all these different ranging from subtle to about as subtle as a brick nods to actual writings of hp lovecraft and you're being kind of massaged into it with this creepy imagery and writing on all these cards right yeah and there's even stuff that um is like lovecraft tangential that they work into it as well because obviously you know um uh, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery right and so like lovecraft wasn't the only person that was writing these like you know supernatural tales and so There's even one that's based off of uh, The the King in Yellow by Robert Chambers, right? Which is Lovecraft adjacent, but is still like still relates to a lot of the Lovecraft themes. And it was so good. Yeah, Yeah, thematically, yeah, really good. That I actually went and read The King in Yellow because I was like, this whole experience was incredible. And that was all founded just in the art itself. I just, I love that art so much. Yeah. So if you like HP Lovecraft, if even if you just like spooky art and it's not it's not like <laughs> it's not a mundane spookiness either. It's a it's a spookiness that challenges you like the idea that there's a there's something behind the door. Right. And that mm-hmm. something may not even have a physical form. And are you scared as the player to open that door to go into the unknown? It's that kind of spookiness, right? Exactly. There was um, a friend of the show, Tom from the one up cup. Also of rise from your grave. Terrific horror punk band said this to me about HP Lovecraft a long, long time ago. And I think that Arkham horror nails this theme very well. Lovecraft's monsters and Lovecraft's type of horror are not about being afraid of the thing. They are about the way that you are going to feel when you see the thing. Yeah. Because it is inevitable. Mm -hmm. It's the, the game in general too, really has this thematic pin on it, right? This despair, this feeling of helplessness, this, fear of the unknown this uh it's just a really dark game right it taps into a lot of negative emotions balanced on the other side of your natural inclination to explore right 
it's it's the perfect kind of thematic parallel to the heroes so to speak of lovecraft's works themselves where their own yeah. curiosity is what leads them into horror right yeah so mm-hmm. it's really cool but it's not only the theming that really popped us about this game when we started playing it yeah it's also the game mechanics so like i mentioned arkham horror is kind of a rpg it's a yeah i would i would i would agree with that it's a deck building game you are literally playing a role you have stats that you manage increase and decrease over the course of an adventure you have health pools you make what are ostensibly dice rolls You gather equipment, skills, and abilities in the form of cards. You gain experience that you, in a way, kind of level up. You level up your cards. So I would say it is kind of adjacent to an RPG experience. Mm -hmm. Uh, It is still very much a card-building game. But I think one of the most unique things about its gameplay is its approach to locations and how that works, and also its characters. because you're not just playing kind of a faceless deck of an assortment of crap. You are taking on the role of a person. And these people have their own roles, their own personalities and their own unique gameplay that comes down to even as specific as the type of cards you can have in your deck. Right. Yep. So that was one of the things that first reached out to us was the characters. And we've actually started a new campaign that we haven't played before uh in terms of the content that's come out we've played all but yes three two i think two two okay two we've played well well, if you include dream eaters three but there's the shadow over innsmith and then there's a new one that came out after that yeah so we've played all but those so we just started this uh this latest campaign and we're playing some kind of uh personal favorite characters let's let's talk about the characters about a a bit yeah let's talk about the characters because honestly man like the characters are the immediate thing that you engage with right Mm -hmm. and i think one of the most fun parts about arkham horror is there's a juggling that you do as the player on what specifically you're looking for out of this game and at first and this is definitely the way that we did it when we started playing You want to pick the characters because you can use any. They release new characters with each expansion and new story and new campaign. But no matter what campaign you're playing, you are permitted to use whatever character from whatever campaign you want. So we had, you know, access to see all the different ones and use all the different ones. And we, of course, picked ones that we felt we would have fun playing. So there is that. And then there is also the aspect of once you get more entrenched into the game and you start to understand that there are lore implications to some of these play, these characters in some of the campaigns, it becomes that much more inspiring to play them. But for this one, I went with two characters that are tried and true ones that I've used before, ones that I love. And the first of which I'd like to talk about is a character named William Yorick. Now, (laughs) if you listener have ever played the Arkham horror um, board game or the mansions of madness board game, you might recognize some of these characters because there is some bleed over William York specifically and trash can Pete are from mansions of madness. If memory serves correctly. And what I love about William York or 
old Bill, as I call him, <laughs> he's got he's he is literally a grave digger. His his uh, uh, his portrait. He's got a shovel on his on his shoulder and he's carrying a lantern and he's got a curious look on his face. And his lore says the following. William Yorick never wanted to be a grave digger. He had trained to be an actor and had worked for years in Boston, taking whatever parts were available. Shakespeare was the best stuff, of course. But after many years and hardly any roles, he was forced to admit that the stage was not his destiny. Digging graves was tedious work, but the dead made for an excellent audience. And William always did love a soliloquy. The job took a dark, dark turn when he found a degenerate creatures eating the dead in their graves. Ever since that night, York has kept the creatures at bay, using whatever means he can to protect the dead. So it's like, you've immediately got this flavor reaching out to you from the card just grabbing you by the face yeah the characters they have an interesting backstory that is told both through their their personal cards and the campaigns they take place in but then you take that next step too and you see their specific cards the way their decks are intended to play their special abilities. And that create, it just cements this personal image of them in mind. So like Yorick's cards and his abilities. Yes. You, you want to go over them real quick? Well, dude, I mean, my, and this is my favorite part about him, right? And I, I won't get into the, to the weeds with some of the mechanics that are at play here. Cause it would take a long to a uh, long time to explain, but basically Scott mentioned that you can get XP for stuff. And one of those things that you can get XP for is killing shit. Yes. <laughs> but not everything that you kill gives you XP. But Bill York, because he's a grave digger, he's got a card called Bury Them Deep, where any enemy that you kill can count for some XP. So to your point, they go that extra step, right? It's not just enough to have the character, to have the art, to have the backstory. You have legitimate, tangible mechanics that you engage with that are different from character to character that deepen that flavor and lore. Yeah. And like even their special abilities like uh, Bill Yorick's, his abilities are like he can take stuff out of his discard pile because he's a grave yep. digger. Right. Anytime you kill an enemy, you take something out of your discard pile, your graveyard. Why? Because you staved off the creatures of hell and beyond and you protected the dead and they reward you. In the same in the same uh, kind of mini campaign that we're playing, I'm playing this guy, Luke Robinson, who's what's called a mystic class. It's just yeah, like a spellcaster like class, right? Yeah. And his special ability, he's actually from that campaign in question where you, we go to the dreamlands is that he has a, a box called a gate box that he can use to go into this special corner of the dream world. He basically teleports all over the place, which is like an absurdly strong power that other uh, mystics don't have access to unless they have a specific card for it. That's way more complicated to use. So Luke, like he's kind of just an okay mystic. His, his stats are a little weird for a mystic, but he yeah. has this like, overpowering ability to just 
move all over the place. And it makes sense yeah. thematically because he's this like dream explorer. Of course, he knows the secret passageways in the dreamland. You know what I mean? Exactly. Or my favorite character in the game, Diana Stanley, who just goes on her little way to infiltrate the cult and go, I don't want to be here anymore. Yeah. And she leaves and she's got all the cult knowledge. So, of course, she's good at thwarting the minions of beyond. Yeah. To your point, man, there are just so many great characters and flavors that are attached to them. I mean, briefly, the other character that I'm playing because in Scott and I. So what's interesting about the campaign that Scott and I are playing um, the Dream Eaters is um, unlike most of the other campaigns, and especially the beginning campaigns, you there's actually two campaigns happening at once. There's people in the dream world and people outside of the dream world. So we're each playing two different characters in this one. And I've kind of been, I kind of took on the role of damage dealer because this is how we normally do it. Scott's always about, you know, being smart. And I'm always about just throwing the hammer down. <laughs> right. Yeah. So I, I of course had to pick another dope ass lore centric character that just wants to kill shit. And her name is Zoe Samaras. And what I love about this character is, be, is it, uh, as somebody that reads Lovecraft and, and is familiar with the work, I always gravitated towards the characters like the characters from the Dunwich Horror that um, doubt, right. right, that are defiant in the face of information, because as much as I might personally think that it is, uh, you know, kind of stupid to do that when you're looking at a five-headed creature and still going but god will protect me yeah that is simultaneously the same thing that i love about zoe because you see zoe had known that she was special ever since god spoke to her one night when she was six years old the night that terrible fire took away her parents he told her that he had chosen her from among all the people from the world to be his agent she would protect the innocent and punish the wicked since then, he comes to her in times of trouble, offering guidance and comfort. Zoe now travels from city to city, taking work as a chef to support herself. And when she isn't working, she stalks the night guided by the Lord's voice. Wherever she finds wickedness, she strikes it down without remorse or hesitation. So she is also fucking insane. Yeah. And it it's a confluence of just this general theme of... Everything is awful and it's so good. Yeah, there's there's so many different archetypes too. like you have the hard boiled detective that I'm playing Joe Diamond, who's one of my favorite investigators. He's the best man. You've, you've got just the, the wackiest assortment of nut jobs probably ever conceived there's like there's the, the one rich guy who can't attack can't make any skill checks he can really only get money and yeah. give it to other people yeah that he's like he's like part of some kind of secret cult lodge too that like <laughs> they come to collect on their debts you have you have um jim culver the guy that's like his his uh trumpet music uh like yeah wards yeah. off and summons the eldritch horrors like you got all these absolute weirdos that their their um their lore and their mechanics just blend together into this i mean ashcan pete you brought him up he, his mechanic is he has a dog 
because he's a drifter and his only yeah. friend is his dog. His he That's starts right. the game with this. It's like it's it's just this really cool. Uh, it's this really cool player narrative, right? You're playing a role, but you're also kind of informing how they handle things. You play Yorick in a really specific way, right? You play yeah. you play Yorick like that's like a murder hobo. So like yeah. <laughs> your Yorick is like he is so unbelievably far gone mentally. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yes. My yeah, my go ahead. I was just going to say that's that's one of the best parts about it is that it is really like stepping into a Geralt in a video game, right? Where it's, yeah, you make his decisions and you influence what happens with him. But at the same time, he's got all this great baked in lore and all this great baked in lore that's happening while you're making these decisions where those decisions could also potentially influence the lore. And it really sparks that for me, too. Yeah, so. There's there is a player expression that is easily achievable when you're playing this game. And that's part of the fun yeah, for us. Right. It, it, it goes hand in hand with the card game decision, right? The, the fact that this is a card game, what you're putting into your deck is your identity as a player. And that's that's what makes it so fun. The other side of that coin is the locations, right? So. If you've ever played a card game before, whether it's head to head or in some ways cooperative, usually you're used to not necessarily like going and exploring things. You're usually just facing a single card. Like I'm thinking of raids in the World of Warcraft game. Another one of my favorite card games. Uh, that's like a, a, a card and a deck that you just draw from and oh, you're fighting the boss and this is what the boss does. Sentinels, yeah. uh, Sentinels of the Multiverse, kind of similar, right? The, it's just you're fighting basically a deck of cards. In right. Arkham Horror, you have they're still they still take the form of cards, but you have locations that are interconnected, almost like right. squares on a board game that you're mm-hmm. literally traversing. They have clues to find you on uh, when you flip a card when you reveal it. It may have clues, this kind of generic token that are kind of the universal currency of progression to progress. Whatever it is you're, you're doing in the story, you usually need to spend some amount of clues. You can't go into some areas until some events happen. There's this really like, there's, there's this really un card game esque progression to a, a game that you're playing. You, you don't feel like you're really doing a card game. You feel more like you're doing a very elaborate board game with hundreds of pieces right yeah and i think the way that you described it as a roguelike earlier is really apt because um you know beyond the progression of and we'll get to this eventually but you mentioned it earlier of like upgrading some of your cards and getting that xp the game gives you agency which is not typically something that you find in a card game, right? Yeah. You're mm-hmm. usually bound within the rules of the game, be it the actual rules of the mechanics or the rules of the thing that you're playing, um, you know, the type of deck you're playing or the type of character you're playing. And I don't want to give the impression that you can just freewheel it and do anything with Arkham Horror and, and their characters and their abilities. But the game, honestly says you start here figure it out right Mm -hmm. you have to get this many clues 
go get them. Where are the clues? I don't fucking know. Yeah. Go look. Yeah. Right. And they just put you in that spot to give you agency. It really is almost like a card game escape room. Yeah. It's, it's very, sim- uh, very similar because like with an escape room or any puzzle, really, yeah. like it's like a puzzle, you're given the pieces and you're just told to find the solution, right? It's, it's okay, you know you need 10 clues. There's five locations on the board. Have fun. See you at the end. You know what I mean? Yeah. Are there clues there? How do you get them? Yeah, because the other thing, um, the I mean, the locations are so much of the fun in the exploration, in seeing the new places. This is where the fear of the unknown comes in in a lot of senses, right? It's like, well, do I being the clue guy in our dynamic duo all the time, a lot of the time I'm like, do I want to be the first one to go into this room? Because what if something spooky grabs me? You know what I mean? I'm not pretty. I'm not particularly good at the shoot bangs. Or do you need your gallant steed? Yeah, my gallant steed that I ride into <laughs> battle. I need I need Chris to go into the room before me. But that's that's um that's that's the appeal of the way that it approaches gameplay, right? Like uh, none of their other, uh, to my knowledge, unless I'm not aware of a living card game, none of their living card games do anything similar to this. Not uh, Game of Thrones, not Android, not Legend of the Five Rings, not Marvel. Uh, Marvel probably being the closest to this game. Oh, you know Mm -hmm. what? Lord of the Rings kind of. Yeah, like the Lord of the Rings LCG. Yeah, nowhere near as complex as this. Yeah, but still that attitude of narrative effect role. Yeah, exactly. This this is kind of an evolution of the Lord of the Rings card game. But yeah, um, yeah. So like, it's a very unique approach to gameplay. You will feel kind of like you're playing a roguelike board game. And the reason I keep calling it a roguelike too, because the other important thing about this game is its difficulty and its yeah. gameplay mechanics. So, yeah, while you're running all over the place and trying to find clues and slinging cards and paying money and all these types of things we won't worry about too much, you are essentially rolling dice, but they go about this in a really unique and I think really clever way. I think more games could benefit from doing something like this. You have what is called the chaos bag. The chaos bag is something you assemble yourself. It is literally a bag, metaphorically or literally, full of tokens. And these tokens are decided by the difficulty level that you're playing at or by other effects. So tokens are usually something from plus one down to like even negative five or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. Some of them get really bad. And then additionally, some that have unique symbols on them. And those symbols themselves may behave differently over the course of a game. And when you pull that out, whatever that is, is just the modifier on whatever you're trying to do. So in combat, there is a combat stat. When you're doing trying to do anything, you're just testing that stat and pulling out a modifier. And that's your new number. And so, yeah, to, to sort of like uh, re- reduce that a little bit, it would almost be like if in Monopoly, you had a set number of spaces that you were allowed to move with or without a dice roll and the dice roll just added or subtracted from that. Yeah. And the beauty of the bag is it allows the game and you to control 
the scope of that dice roll, right? Right. On mm-hmm. higher difficulty, you'll get more negative numbers. You'll get negative fours in your bag. Yeah. Which means if you want to be able to move these four monopoly spaces, you better damn well be able to move. You know what I mean? That's right. That's so, right. Um, the chaos bag and all the elements surrounding it, having uh, the, the resource management that you need to be able to play your assets, trying to uh, burn cards to get more stats. There's like this really cool interplay of trying to reach basically a magic number. When Chris and I were taking our games most seriously, we would look at the bag and say, okay, statistically, right? If I, if I am attempting this skill of five on two or whatever, right? I have a skill of five and I need two to beat it. What are the odds that I'm going to succeed? What are, what's the percentage chance I'm going to pull out a modifier that's yeah, right. going to f- absolutely fuck me here, right? <laughs> Pretty high. And yeah, so that is it. There's a really cool crunch to it, too. You could you could just as easily go through the game, not really paying any attention to it at all. Set it to a low mm-hmm. difficulty. But there there is crunch here to be found. And when you when you dig into this crunch, when you bite into this apple, man, you're going to get some bitter fucking taste. There have been times where we have just stopped playing. Yes, because. It's almost like so a thematic with the chaos bag thematically. I understand. And we've said this playing before. I un- I get that it's Cthulhu, right? The inevitable, the ever present, the always here, the never going away, your doom, your torment, your suffering. You cannot escape. But you got to let me make it through the game. Yeah. <laughs> All right, we got this. I've got like three minions on me, <laughs> and this one is super powerful. I think, what's the magic number for this guy? Uh, seven? I'm pretty sure it's seven. Seven for guaranteed. So if I hit a seven, because I have meat cleaver, yep. Because I'm equipped with a meat cleaver, I'm going to get extra damage on this because I'm going to yep. allow myself to take some horror. Yeah, and you'll get it back. Which means if I kill this guy mm-hmm. with my bonus from my beat cop ally that gives me plus one to my attack, with my bonus from meat cleaver, and with my trial by fire asset, that puts me at eight. Yep. So there's no possible way I'm not going to kill this thing. Yeah. <laughs> unless I fuck. No. The fucking tentacle. Fuck. Dude. We're boned. <sighs> Arkham Horror, dude. So we should start off by saying that the way that Arkham Horror works is you play a campaign with a series of chapters, basically, right? It is a story. It is a story. Arkham Horror knows that you will more than likely die. You will not lose the game even if you fail every single chapter. As long as your characters do not die. You can play a six-episode campaign and lose every single episode and still technically finish the game. 
Right. That should tell you something about this game's approach to difficulty, where you can mm-hmm. just fail your way through it. So this game, it, <laughs> rules is written, has a, a thematic approach to its difficulty, like Chris said. It really embraces the idea of this is a Lovecraft game. Not only should things be hard, things should just go inexplicably and terribly wrong. Right. There are many instances you'll run into where you'll find that you just do not have time to do what you want to do. To meet the win condition of that act. You will find that more often than not, especially if you're not playing the game in a very meta sense where you're like constantly moving. Right. Yeah. You will find because make no mistake. You can min max a lot of the stuff that's here. You can maximize your minimum output in a lot of ways if you build your deck correctly. But even that sometimes is not enough. You will a lot of times find yourself woefully inequipped for what you end up against, especially on your first time through. This is why I call this game a roguelike. And I'll come back to that in a second. You, we have several times while playing encountered an enemy or a situation, looked at each other and said, I can literally do nothing about this. I don't yeah. have the capacity to deal with it. And then the other person saying, well, I don't either. So we're just kind of fucked, right? Mm-hmm. You will also many times do the right thing. You will generate the math You'll do the pencil math on the paper. You'll get yourself with cards and assets and all these different things to the magic number. Chris and I talked about the magic number not a lot while we were playing. The magic number is no matter what modifier I pull out of here, I'm going to succeed. It's Except a, it's, instant fail. It, yeah, it's a, I'll get to that. It's a skill of one, <laughs> right? Like you only need a one to pass this thing. And I've got yeah. a skill of 14 or some crazy crap, right? Like right. there, there is no force on earth that can stop me. And then you pull out the red tentacle token. No matter what you fail, it doesn't matter right. how prepared you are. It doesn't matter if you have a card that says you win. The token trumps all when you fail. And we would pull this thing so often (laughs) and always at the worst conceivable time. And it would just suck the life out of the room. I I mean, truly it is. And so I want to say, I want to call out that there is an antithesis to the tentacle instant fail. And it is called the blue sigil token. At least that's what we call it. Mm -hmm. It's like a pentagram token. That's like the sigil of yoga or whatever it is in the lore. I can't even remember what it, what it's called now, but to give you an example, conversely, if the tentacle is a, um, instant fail, then the star effect is, um, all, all but guaranteed as an instant win. Um, as it does something different for every character. I would like to go back to William York real quick, my favorite character in the game, who, when playing as William York, if you draw this out of the chaos bag, its effect grants you a plus two for that skill test. So it is effectively a plus two, which in and of itself 
is pretty rare in the chaos bag. But additionally, with Yorick, if that test is successful, you are permitted to return one card from your discard pile to your hand. So when it happens, you're always like, let's go. This is awesome. I get a benefit. I win the skill check. Usually, sometimes it doesn't happen, but you still get the benefit, right? Uh, a lot of the times, depending on the character you're playing. But I cannot tell you with confidence that the feeling of getting that token offsets the feeling of getting the instant fail. It doesn't. And that's one of my biggest issues with the game is that for a game that almost seemingly wants you to fail, it makes feeling it makes failing feel awful. Yeah. And this is why I called the game a roguelike so many times. In my opinion, and I know Chris and I have talked about this several times about every campaign we've played, I think that the most enjoyable experience from a purely gameplay perspective, there is clearly, I mean, despite how much we're complaining about the difficulty here, we're still playing campaigns, right? We enjoy the feeling of like going into the unknown for a pure yeah. gameplay experience. Everything is better when you know exactly what you're up against, when you're no longer exploring a mystery, when you're just executing on scenarios you've already done before, because then you're not up against the clock that we've already mentioned where like you, you really don't have time to screw around in this game. If you yep. there, every mission is on a timer and you basically have maybe a good two or three rounds of not being directly productive in any given scenario. Right. And, and this is where we get into what we say about thematically it is good, right? This is the double-edged sword of this mechanic is that thematically it puts you in the place of characters within a Lovecraft story. Oh my fucking God. There is this guy. He was a normal looking guy a second ago. Now he's got a bunch of shit coming out of his back and he's coming for me and I don't have any weapons to defend myself against. I am fucked. But I have a hard time agreeing with any sort of mechanic that is put in place under the guise of you should fail playing a game. You should play to win. People are going to innately want to win the game. And I think that the way that they, as you mentioned before, the way that they sort of get around this is by making it not an instant fail of the entire campaign if you fail the campaign or if you fail the chapter rather, but it is detrimental to the rest of the campaign. And again, like I said, doesn't provide the juxtaposition to the feeling of getting the sigil star, which is just kind of a, in a vacuum moment of, Oh, sick. It does not provide a good enough answer to that. It provides a much worse, much worse feeling answer. Yeah. The difficulty is definitely one of the biggest attractors. It's not even the difficulty. It's the mechanics the game uses to create difficulty, right? The game yeah. is plenty. If, if, even if you were to take the tentacle out, the game is plenty difficult on harder difficulties. We've done. I would a, agree with that. We've yeah. done a couple scenarios on the hard difficulty 
And it's hard to just get to like a magic number where you can feel comfortable doing the stuff you want to do, let alone with the threat of instant failure. Um, the the uh, I think the first time that we tried a hard difficulty, it was because we had done like uh, three or four of them on easy and medium. And we were like, well, fuck this. It's just the two of us. We've got this. We're experienced. We know it. And we died. We didn't even finish the story. We nah. died. Mm -hmm. It's it's definitely a game, too, that we should say allows you to choose your own difficulty very well. If yes. you just want to experience the story, the easy difficulty is good enough. And then the magic of board games, as usual, something they will always have up on video games. You could just take the tentacle out of the bag. Yeah. House rules. The FBI is not going to come kicking down your door if it bothers you that <laughs> badly. So, yeah, exactly. It's definitely it would definitely like change the atmosphere of the game. But yeah, if it's if it's that much of a deal breaker, you can just take it out. But and it, it's it's not even like it's not even. Um, Cause obviously we keep coming back to it. Right. So it's not something yeah. that chases us away from the game enough to be like, you know, we're not playing this anymore. Right. Like there are plenty of board games and plenty of video games where I've experienced the mechanic or something in there where it's like, this is just anti fun to the point where I'm not inspired to play it anymore. Right. Yeah. And that's not the case here. So rest assured, dear listener, Arkham Horror's difficulty is what it is. But as Scott just mentioned, you have the power. Yeah. It's also something to be said, too, that this is a one to four player cooperative game. Yes. Cooperative games are a lot easier to play with friends. I think a lot of the time there you will always run into the problem, even with Android Netrunner, one of my favorite games. Right. If you have the leg up on a person like I, this is not something I could just go to any person I know and say, hey, would you like to play some Netrunner with me? Because I'm probably going to destroy them with my knowledge of the game. And then for them, it's just that binary interaction with basically the very hard difficulty with no ability to change it. Right. Yep. And this cooperative game, we can all mutually decide the degree to which we want to struggle against this game. Right. Yes. Yes. So. And, and you are investigators on a team. This yeah. is, this is not like a game like betrayal at house on the hill, where at some point the shoe is going to drop and somebody's going to become the bad guy. You've all got to rally against him. You're in this from the beginning through the end. And in my opinion, it is best experienced with friends. Um, you can absolutely challenge yourself and try to do something by your, by, on your own. Um, but I think that's really a lot of the magic of the game, right? And I don't want to, you know, pivot unceremoniously here, but victory, when it's victory together, feels so fucking good. Yeah, absolutely. Especially when you get to a very satisfying ending of the story, right? Um, you know, you don't have to be familiar with Lovecraft to enjoy a lot of this stuff. You don't have to be inspired to go read Lovecraft or Lovecraft adjacent things in order to enjoy this stuff. You can simply just enjoy the idea of a, a, an occult satanic theme that's sort of that puts you in a game space to explore it. And I think that as weird as this is going to sound, I love playing this game around Halloween more than anything else, dude. Partly because it's when we started getting into it, but also partly because like there's something so amazing about the spook factor to it. Yeah. You know what I mean? And 
the spook factor, like you were sort of alluding to earlier, um, it's not contrived. You know what I mean? It's not something that just takes Lovecraft and says, well, we're just going to copy paste and make a board game out of it. I mean, they understand a lot of what is spooky about Lovecraftian horror, which is really great. And their adaptations have been excellent. I mean, my favorite Lovecraft story of all time, the Dunwich Horror, we played through the Dunwich Conspiracy, which is one of the campaigns, and it's fucking incredible, right? And yeah. even all of the things that we lament about the mechanics, right? One that I want to call out uh, really especially, again, is the King in Yellow story for the Arkham Horror game. That expansion, that that one based off of uh, the story by Robert W. Chambers, because you mentioned before, like, sometimes you'll, count, you'll uh, encounter an enemy, Right. And it'll be like, there is nothing that we can physically do to stop this. But I think that, uh, the, um, the, that, that campaign, the King in yellow campaign is, is one that really balances that well, because you not only have multiple ways to strategize about how to take out the big bad, but at no point up until the end, does he ever seem like a threat that is going to ruin your game? Until he gets close enough to you where it seems like he might. So it becomes this dance of not, oh, my God, there is the thing, but the thing is back. What do we do now? Yeah, I loved that. What did you think about that one? Yeah. So I want to segue that into another great thing about this game, too, which is having made many card games. uh, Fantasy Flight is. They get very meta with this game, with Arkham Horror LCG, especially in its exploration aspects. So, yeah, in that in the path to Carcosa, I think it's called right. Is the name Carcosa. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. Um, That is the name of the uh, campaign we did. There's that great interaction with uh, what was he called? Like the faceless man or something like that. The man without a face. The man without a face. Uh, there's the great interactions with him, but you'll you'll do things that you would just you as a person would find very innocuous. Like, huh, I wonder what's on the back of this agenda card and you'll turn it over and the card will say, why are you looking at this? Yes. Write this down in your campaign log. You shouldn't have looked at this. And now you have. Like, I think it's like the thing is hunting you written down in your campaign log. And you're like, what the fuck? All because I just flipped this card over because I was curious. Right. Yeah. Uh And there's there's a prevailing theme of madness, a la the king in yellow in that campaign. Right. And you'll you'll encounter these scenarios all the time where it's like they they are deliberately fucking with me because they, they know I think this is a card game or whatever. And I'm bound to do some particular thing. I'm definitely going to go beat up the guy because he's the guy. He showed up again. Why would I not go beat him up? And then the game's immediately like, why did you do that? Are you sure you wanted to do that? (laughs) I'm like, I think so. Why are you doing Mm -hmm. this to me? (laughs) Yeah, right. Yeah, Yeah. it's um, I love like like meta is the right word for it. But to describe the way that it makes me feel, I love when a game is in your head. Yes. You know what I mean? And whether that's a video game or a board game, I think it shows a great level of care to the design where it's not just, 
I want the players to interact with this thing this way, but it is indicative of a philosophy of if I were the player, what would I do and how can I incorporate this into the actual mechanics of the story? Right. Yeah. And I think good. And I was just going to say, I just think that that's so pure with it, you know? Yeah, we we experienced so few instances of feeling like we were scraping against the walls of the design, right? Yeah, yeah. We, we never felt the bumpers. Exactly. And so the campaign that we're playing right now, I am actually really enjoying. It's the campaign that I wanted to play the most whenever we started playing this. So I'm finally... I'm finally glad that we're here, right? Um, but it's called The Dream Eaters. And to read the description off of fantasyflightgames.com, uh, it says the following. There is a hidden realm beyond the world of the waking, a realm of wonder, imagination, and nightmares. After occult author Virgil Gray writes about his adventures in a place he refers to as the dreamlands, you decide to learn the truth for yourself. But the deeper you fall into your investigation the more you find yourself questioning what is real and what is fiction and what secrets await in the dark forbidden places beyond the gates of sleep. So I mentioned earlier that this is a campaign that is uh, done in two parts. There is a dreamland team and a real world team. And that's unique to a lot of these campaigns. So what are you thinking about that so far? I really like this campaign. I've gotten farther in it than you have. I played this with another friend to try and introduce oh, them right. to the game. Yeah. And honestly, I think this is some of the most creative stuff that they've done. Uh, yeah. I really like the Path to Carcosa set, but I think that the idea of giving you agency over your own campaigns to look in on what you're doing and be able to react to it. Right. I think it is really clever stuff and I'm really excited to see your reaction to it because the other thing that this does so well is that it really pushes the limits of your imagination in the dreamland stuff similar to what I was talking about with kind of the meta, the meta mechanics on the cards. And like, are you sure you wanted to do that? The game is not going to lay out exactly what you should do and how you should interact with some of the cards. Right. And it's going to be interesting to see you react to it, but yeah, it's, this is one of the most visually impressive card sets. I think they've done too. Yeah. I'm really excited. And, um, you know, I'm really excited to keep going through with it. I'm really excited to keep checking in on it. Um, there are a lot of items that we haven't talked about, uh, weapon systems, things that will become um, a little bit more uh, involved in the Dream Eaters as we continue in. So uh, we'll definitely check back in on this and and check back up on it and, um, you know, come back in because I really think that this is a, a game that everybody should seek. Um, especially if you're somebody that enjoys um, not only card games um, and things that are set up that way, but uh, if you enjoy games that have a uh, personal uh, sort of um, pattern of progression to where you can almost get better at outthinking the game, this is a really, really fun experience. And especially if you have somebody um, to play with and you're into the lore 
I also cannot doubly and triply re- re- recommend it enough. And um, you can find all the, all the information on it on fantasyflightgames.com. But uh, but yeah, man, I, I cannot wait to continue going through this this campaign. Yeah, we're going to have a good time. Uh, it's exciting to come back to it, too, after taking a break from it for so long. Part of the fun of the living card game model is given time, right, and support, there's more to come back to, right? They're, right now, yep. they're, they're still creating even more content for the game. They're, they're creating more Innsmouth material. That's what they're working on right now. They're creating a At the Mountains of Madness expansion too so there there's more goodness to come yes um and uh don't forget doom is always bad yes so do <laughs> we will definitely be checking back in on this campaign as it unfolds um we've got a lot more to talk about about arkham horror but we we wanted to check in real quick because we just started playing a campaign and before we get to watching some wrestling we want to tell you guys about how we love it, how much we love it, and why you guys should play it. Um, But more info to come on that. In the meantime, you can check out this episode and all the rest of the episodes at themanyfolds.com, as well as on Spotify, Apple, iTunes, whatever you want to call it now, Amazon, Google, TuneIn, all the fun stuff, as well as on YouTube at The Many Folds, uh, our account name. You can check in and say hi at The Many Folds on Twitter and Instagram. And um, until then... We'll be, uh, I'll be trying on my spandex, Scott, to flaunt them for you. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm excited. Uh, sweaty dudes, uh, grappling each other and cuddling on the ground. Uh, sounds like my Saturday night. So that's, that, that's exactly right. And now that we've recapped the last time that we played Arkham Horror, now let's talk about what's, <laughs> what, what, what professional wrestling is. Yeah. All right. Until next time. See ya. Peace. King of the shoe.